Let's take our Bibles, brothers and sisters, and turn in the Holy Scripture to the prophecy of Jonah. Last Sunday, we had opportunity to focus on the majority of chapter 1. This morning, I ask for your attention to Jonah 1, beginning at verse 17, reading to the end of chapter 2, which serves as both our reading as well as our text. You find that on page 1068 of your Pew Bibles. Jonah 1, beginning at verse 17. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly, and he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remember the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you. With the voice of thanksgiving, I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. After the proclamation of God's word, we'll sing in response from Psalm 25, stanzas three and four. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I recognize that it is summertime and yet I'd still like to ask the question, what makes for an ideal classroom atmosphere? What kinds of teaching aids, charts, objects, etc., would be helpful to have around for the class? Well, the answer depends, of course, on what kinds of subjects are being taught, the age level at which they're being taught, and for that matter, the kind of teacher responsible to lead the class. The teachers, especially in our elementary schools, generally give a good amount of thought as to what kinds of things they'll put in the room to, make, to help make an ideal classroom setting atmosphere for the children. Now, I am not myself a trained educator, but I know enough to say that 99.9% .9 of us would never want to learn a lesson or two in the belly of a fish. 
And yet that's exactly where the Lord God sent Jonah and for that purpose. We can call the fish's belly a temporary classroom for Jonah. It would have been dark, wet, weedy, probably smelly, hardly an ideal classroom atmosphere we would say. The class is in session because Jonah is sorely in need of learning. The Lord has brought Jonah far, far down. Down to Joppa, down into the ship, down into the inner parts of the ship, down into a deep sleep, and now down into the depths of the sea. That's how it goes with the child of God. When we run from God, our lives spiral downward. We think that sin will bring some form of satisfaction and safety, but it always leads to some form of death, both in our relationship with God and with one another. And yet for the child of God, also that form of death is meant for good. Covenant children can go down into the pit, but that downward movement itself displays the good intent of God. He wants to humble his child and thereby teach him a certain lesson. Jonah, we saw last week, had a real problem with God's love and God's grace. He didn't get it. He didn't understand what it was all about. And so the Lord brought him very, very low to provide Jonah with the right setting for Jonah to learn something about himself and about his God. God wanted to show Jonah the very thing that Jonah had been stubbornly refusing to see and rejoice over, the unparalleled reach of God's grace. But does the lesson have its intended effect on Jonah? Does Jonah get the point in that dark, wet, weedy classroom? What does God's great display of grace in his life uncover in his heart? Really, is the lesson God was teaching Jonah all that different from the lesson God longs for us to learn today as well? yet one which we are so strikingly slow to learn. I proclaim to you this word of the Lord. In the belly of Sheol, the Lord schools his prodigal prophet on divine grace. We'll see first the reach of the Lord's grace. Secondly, the resistance to his grace. Chapter 1, verse 17, brothers and sisters, introduces what's indeed the most famous aspect of this book, that a great fish swallowed the prophet. Now this has, we can understand, attracted an abundant amount of attention. People wonder whether this is a miracle or myth. Those wanting to prove that it's a miracle try to document accounts of fish swallowing men who yet live to tell the tale. But if there are all sorts of these instances, 
then what's described here is not so much a miracle as it's just one of those odd events that sometimes happens. And I would hasten to add, too much concentration on that great fish can distract from examining what actually happened on Jonah's remarkable subterranean voyage. And so to kick things off, we first pay attention this morning to the prominent feature of the sovereignty of God. This text is framed, it's bracketed by demonstrations of the Lord's sovereignty over nature. Verse 17, now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. God appointed, God commissioned the fish to take care of his prodigal prophet. He wonderfully stationed this great fish at exactly the right place in the ocean at the right time to pick up its reluctant passenger. And so the question of whether a fish could under normal circumstances provide a safe habitat for a man for three days is really beside the point. For even if such a fish could do that, the chances of a fish being handy in the Mediterranean at the right time are slim to none. It's a miracle, that's the point. The Lord sovereignly provided this unique agent for Jonah's rescue. Because there is no place in all of creation where God's sovereignty is limited. And then at the end of our passage, the fish obeys God again. After three days and three nights, God, uh, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. The fish obeys, you see, every time, in contrast to the stubborn disobedience of the one it was sent to save. But that itself is also quite noteworthy. God is sovereign not just over nature, but even over the disobedience of Jonah. When Jonah is tossed overboard, he's got nothing to expect in those churning waters except death by drowning. Indeed, we suggested last time that this may very well have been his heart's desire. If I die, I won't have to go to Nineveh. But to his surprise, he's swallowed by a big fish. Jonah cannot duck the Lord's sovereignty. It's very remarkable. What Jonah least wanted, what the pagan sailors most wanted but couldn't achieve, the Lord accomplishes so easily, bringing Jonah back to dry land. Even Jonah's covenant disobedience cannot throw a wrench in God's sovereign plan. And God's sovereign plan is to show his sovereign grace to Jonah, to give him a second chance. Whoever heard of somebody being swallowed by a fish and surviving? In the Bible, water is a very threatening and dangerous element very often. We think of the great flood where the sea displayed its power to judge, swallow, destroy. Think of Israel making it across the Red Sea 
You can just imagine, can't you, that as they walked along the sea floor, they're looking to the right and to the left at those huge walls of water, wondering if they were walking into what would be their watery grave. Think of the crossing at the Jordan River. There too, water was perilous. Waters are the power of death and drowning. He who is plunged into them is plunged into death and the grave. Sheol, the dark home of the dead, which in the New Testament comes to be translated sometimes as hell. Do you see where Jonah is headed? He's thrown overboard and he's headed for hell from the presence of the Lord. That's where he's been trying to go from the start. Recall at the very beginning of Jonah 1 that we are told twice that Jonah had been looking to flee from the presence of the Lord. And now it looks as though the Lord is giving him over to what he asked for. You want to flee from my presence? All right, I'll bring you to Sheol, to hell. But this is where the surprise of God's sovereign grace comes. Even there, in the depths of the earth, in the watery grave of Sheol, even there, God is sovereign to save. Why did God save Jonah? Besides the fact that Jonah still has to preach to Nineveh. Very simply, God saved him to give him a life lesson about grace. There is no limit to the reach of God's grace, and no one deserves that grace, least of all the messenger of grace himself on his way to Sheol. It is God showing his goodness to guilty sinners who deserve only severe justice and have no reason to expect anything but severe justice. The belly of the fish was Jonah's lecture hall, and the three-day course is God's undeserved grace 101. Jonah, you wanted to limit my grace by refusing to go to outsiders. You wanted to get beyond the reach of my presence and power, but I want you to see and acknowledge Jonah in your own life, in your own experience, in dealing with your sin, that there's no limit to my grace. My grace reaches all the way to the realm of the dead. Now this whole picture, brothers and sisters, should be rather encouraging to us. Do you ever think that you've messed up the Lord's plan for your life? You've made sinful choices that have taken you to a difficult place. You view yourself as in a pit. Perhaps it's even stronger than that, that you have given yourself over to your sin and you are effectively running as hard and as fast as you can away from God. Or perhaps you've tried to do what is right but you're frustrated because circumstances have seemed to conspire against you and the storms of life have invaded. But the book of Jonah shows us that God is sovereign 
over that as well. We need to notice that there is nothing in our lives, no corner, no crisis beyond the reach of God. He's always pursuing our hearts. And sometimes that means turning you over to your sin and letting you run. At other times, it means surrounding you with frustrating circumstances. But in the midst of it all, as far as the Lord's purpose is concerned, you are always in the right place at the right time. He will even use your sins and your trials to bring about good fruit in your life. So his grace finds you even in those places where you thought to hide from his presence. You're never beyond the reach of your God. Jonah needed to learn that God is at work to save already before those fleeing from him are aware and that he can reach down as far as Sheol itself to do his saving work. Jonah needed to see the extent of God's grace to make him a better servant of the Lord, a bona fide preacher of grace to lost sinners. The question is, did Jonah get it? What does our text say? Well, that's our second point where we do see the resistance to his grace. Well, Jonah, who so far has been so silent, is suddenly all talk. Here he opens up, he gives us a glimpse into his thinking, and when he opens up, it's to pray to God, which is a first for Jonah in this book. He didn't pray when he fled to Joppa, or when he boarded the ship, or even when the captain of the ship begged him to pray. Uh, This suggests that Jonah is already being changed by the experience of being brought low. His prayer takes the form of a psalm of thanksgiving. Such a psalm was often used in Israel to recount a crisis and the deliverance from that crisis and then to thank the Lord for the deliverance. Jonah's prayer has all of this. Therefore, many read this psalm as evidence of a transformation in Jonah. Jonah sees the error of his ways. He now recognizes that the Lord alone is sovereign over salvation. This is a repentant prophet, it said. Well, I'm not so optimistic. There's certainly a change. He's now praying to be delivered. And that prayer expresses this longing to be in God's presence again, which was what he was fleeing from up to that point. But as the second half of the story unfolds in chapters three and four, it's abundantly clear that his attitude to the Ninevites hasn't changed at all. And his prayer shows us why. Jonah, though in dire straits because of disobedience, doesn't recognize his sin, and so he utters not a word of confession. 
Oh, he's quite clear about the sovereignty of God in his situation, and that's good. But by the end of the prayer, the prophet has still failed to get to the heart of the issue, namely his sinful rebellion. We would have expected something like a penitential psalm, an acknowledgement of sin, like the language of David in Psalm 32 after his sin with Bathsheba. But no, Jonah is grateful that the Lord rescued him, but he doesn't recognize his own fault in all of this. And so the prophet resembles the very people whom he represents, Israel, and about whom God says, this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. The first part of this prayer offers a brief summary of Jonah's trouble and the Lord's deliverance. Verse two, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. Sheol, we've already hinted at, is the dark place of silence where those who rebel against God deserve to end up for judgment. Now Jonah was not just in Sheol, but in the belly of Sheol. Jonah regarded himself as virtually dead in the deepest part of that dismal dungeon. But even there, the Lord found him and rescued him. And then Jonah offers up what seems to be quite an orthodox confession of God's sovereignty. Verse three, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. So it's not just the sailors that cast him in, it's the Lord, he says. And the floods surrounded me, all your billows and your waves passed over me. These were God's means of judgment, not just random circumstances. Verse four, then I said, I have been cast out of your sight. But to say this is to say much too little. If this were in any way, shape, or form a prayer of repentance, it would have been more accurate for Jonah to speak in the active sense. I have fled from your sight. That's what he did. But here there is no admitting of his own responsibility for his brush with death. Instead, the way he talks almost makes him sound like an innocent bystander, and that it's really God who's responsible for his distress. And then he proceeds to drop altogether the connection between the Lord and the threatening waters. Verse five, the waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me, weeds were wrapped around my head. Uh, these images show the life-threatening aspect of his time in the sea. His chances of escape are reduced even further by the depths of his descent. Verse six, I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me 
forever. Far from the Lord, Jonah sees nothing but death. Light and life were gone from him forever. And then we hear about his amazing, unexpected deliverance. At the lowest and most hopeless of all possible points, God rescues him. Jonah's demise has been averted, and he has only God to thank for it, which he does, but he's shockingly brief on the matter. When, yet, second half of verse six, yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. It's somewhat striking that the one who's praying for deliverance is more prominent in the prayer than God the deliverer, as if it were his prayer that had the key role in his deliverance. It's not like the Psalms, which are very much God-centered. Psalm 116 is a psalm praising God for deliverance from the cords of death. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the simple-hearted. When I was in great need, he saved me. Others dwell on God and his details. Jonah dwells on Jonah and his details. He is not repentant for running away. We really get zero indication that his heart has changed. And this is most evident at the end of this psalm in verses eight to nine. There is this smugness about him. He talks about those who regard worthless idols. They forsake their own mercy. It's the idea of they forsake their own hope of covenant love. And he contrasts them with himself when he says in verse nine, literally, but as for me, I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. I will pay what I have vowed. Who regard worthless idols? Jonah is thinking about the pagan sailors, about the Ninevites, about people who have no covenantal claim to the Lord's steadfast love. Jonah sees himself as a faithful worshiper who enjoys the Lord's covenant faithfulness while those who worship false gods, worthless idols, have no hope of experiencing this. And so his final words, salvation is of the Lord, are words not well understood by Jonah. Since salvation is the Lord's, it's something that can come to pagan idolaters, turning them into God-fearers just as easily as it can come to runaway prophets. But no, Jonah is better than they. I'm gonna go to the temple and sacrifice. Jonah's heart is not 
anywhere close to the right place. He knows his scriptures, but he doesn't know his God. And so, it's little wonder that at the end of this psalm, verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Interesting, interesting word choice, vomited. Appears only nine times in the Old Testament, three times in Leviticus to describe the promised land expelling its inhabitants into exile because of their sin. Well, so here, divinely induced vomiting suggests that the fish and God have had quite enough of Jonah. The fish is quite literally sick to his stomach of Jonah and his false piety and therefore vomits him out. Jonah may have been redeemed and delivered from death, but he thinks little of the grace that delivered him. And so, he thinks of fellow sinners as idol worshipers who don't deserve a thing from the Lord, unlike prophets like him who do deserve God's grace even when they mess up. And yet in spite of his self-righteousness and his confusion, the Lord still delivers Jonah from the pit. How great God's grace in the face of Jonah's resistance toward learning the lesson. Is it possible that our behavior is not all that far different from Jonah's? Absolutely. We can have great theology, and we do, but not live up to it. Jonah is absolutely right when he says salvation is of the Lord. He's spot on when he recognizes that it's the Lord who cast him into the sea. And he nails it when he says that idolaters don't deserve God's covenant, steadfast love and mercy. And yet he can't bring that great theology to bear on his own heart. He's confused about election. He thought that being part of God's chosen people was a matter of ethnicity and outward conformity, not heart submission to God. As long as he continued to say the right things and offer the right sacrifices to fulfill his vows, then he deserved God's faithfulness. In other words, come back to a theme also from last week. Election divided the world into insiders and outsiders. God's steadfast love, his faithfulness to his covenant commitments belongs only to insiders. And so long as they stay clear of really big sins like idolatry, insiders could mess up and still look to the Lord for help. But outsiders, salvation is of the Lord, but the Lord is of his people. Salvation belongs to the Lord, but you see, the Lord, in Jonah's mind, belongs to his people, not to outsiders. 
So long as Jonah maintained his theological orthodoxy, he couldn't possibly be a great sinner. Do we not so often do exactly the same thing? We divide the world into insiders and outsiders, those who deserve grace and those who don't. We can be proud of our reformed theology and thus think that we deserve God's favor while others are outsiders. But in this process, we become idolaters. We idolize election, idolize grace, idolize the covenant. We can treat all of these things as if they were our property and yet be totally unwilling to follow the Lord from the heart. Well, let's push this a bit further. Confessional pride. We can be so proud of our confessional formulations. We can love doctrine, but maybe fail to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God and with others. It is possible to think I'm okay because I believe the right things, read the right books, go to the right church, sing the right music, send my children to the right school. But that can all of it be a cover up, a smoke screen for a low understanding of God's grace. The shocking thing that we learn from Jonah's song is in our hearts, we can turn our church, our membership, our theology, our covenant connection to God into idols, preventing us from cherishing his grace that he gives freely to all kinds of sinners, even to us. Grasping this is what transforms our prayers. Let me ask, what role does confession of sin, missing from Jonah 2, play in your prayers? That's a key indicator of the extent to which you view yourself as an insider to grace. Might I have to admit that I view myself to a large extent as a natural insider to God's grace? There is relatively little confession of sin in my prayers. Instead, I expect God to help me because I'm part of his people. Oh, I can identify other people's sins easily enough and do it all day long. But my own sin so often remains hidden from me, cunningly concealed behind my love for doctrine, order in the church, and really, love for myself. I don't really see my sin as all that bad, and so I don't see really God's grace towards me as all that amazing. What's the answer to our problem? Well, it's found in that glorious statement Jonah uttered but didn't really grasp. Salvation is of the Lord. God is sovereign over our salvation from beginning to end. 
And that means it's not something I inherit simply by being born into a Christian family. If I am God's, it's because he chose me. Otherwise, salvation would belong to me, but it's the Lord's alone. And that means that it's also the Lord's steadfast love that sovereignly keeps us safe to the end. Even when outwardly we conform to his law, our hearts are often motivated by sinful pride, by a desire to please others, be seen by others. And yet you see, in spite of our idolatry, in spite of our slowness to cherish his grace, his steadfast love remains equally sure, enduring forever. Because your salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end. But how can it be that the Lord would show such steadfast covenant faithfulness to people like us? Well, the answer is found in the one to whom Jonah points. How did the Son of God, who to, so to speak, had great theology. How did he love sinners? He loved them from the heart. He welcomed in the despised and the outcast. He reached out to the woman of Samaria who was part of an idolatrous people and who herself had such a shady history. But since salvation is of the Lord, he could give it to her. And so he could also reach out to despise tax collectors and prostitutes. For he was obedient. But the pathway of obedience through which outsiders could come in meant for Jesus a profound separation from his father for our sins. Christ went to the belly of the earth, past the gates of hell and to hell itself, driven away from the Father's presence into utter darkness. He actually felt the full measure of God's hellish torment. That was his baptism of judgment. It immersed him, pulled and dragged him down into its deepest depths where all of our self-righteousness and pride and idolatry all of our rejection of those unlike us was laid upon him. You know, the father did not reach down and deliver the life of his beloved son from the pit. When the son cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The father did not appoint some beast to go down there and rescue him. Instead, the Father turned out the lights. But Christ experienced all this in order that his place of death would become our place of deliverance. His death became our place of undeserved mercy. The cross, like the belly of the fish, is good news. And he didn't stay there. For the Lord would not abandon the soul of his Holy One in Sheol, 
Up from the grave he arose, also on the third day. And the earth didn't vomit him out. Death simply couldn't hold on to him because he was innocent of sin and sovereign over life and death. And so he triumphed once for all over sin, death, and hell on behalf of his people to complete his work of redemption. And so now, beloved, because of his unmerited kindness and faithfulness in dying and rising for you, you receive full, free, wonderful salvation that is of the Lord. God's steadfast love is all yours because of Christ. And that gives great assurance of your salvation. And that should also prepare you to love and welcome in other great sinners to the family of God. If you have learned to see yourself as a great sinner, how can you look down on anybody else? We are all, each of us, idolaters. We have all forfeited our rights to the Lord's steadfast love, and yet we all receive it nonetheless for the sake of Christ. Salvation is of the Lord, which means that he can save anyone, even self-righteous people like us who are so slow to get his lesson about his grace. Salvation is of the Lord, so cherish his grace. It's far more than we comprehend and infinitely more than we deserve. Amen.